Yeah, yeah. What's up, Flatiron Tower? We? Good, man. You guys are awake today. You sound good out there. Hey, a uh, few announcements for you. One really serious one. One at, uh, uh, at about three o'clock today, something really significant is going to happen. No matter where you are, what you're doing, I need you to just take time out uh, and pray that the University of Kentucky beats Michigan today. Uh, so far, God has answered the prayers of the righteous, and uh, Duke, Duke has lost, uh, Kansas has lost, North Carolina has lost, and uh, Kentucky, by the grace of God, beat Louisville the other night, which is awesome. Our campus pastor here, Jesse DeYoung, is actually a Louisville fan and therefore not a follower of Jesus. And so uh, when, you, when you leave today, just please you know, say, um, God bless you to Jesse and go Big Blue, not as in Michigan, but as in the real Big Blue, University of Kentucky Wildcats. So if you'll do that, no, 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 hey, that's, that shirt is not allowed in here, all right? That it, see, look at that. It's like a highlighter color. That's really intimidating. Yeah. So, so anyway, today, pray about that. The other thing is this. In your, in your programs today, pull those out real fast. You'll see this thing uh, at the bottom of, of this page that says, Jim's new book, No More Dragons. All right? So I've known Jim for over 12 years now. We've been, been great friends for a long, long time. He's one of the most ADD people I've ever met in my life. And somehow, um, we have a book that has been uh, spawned from the mind of Jim Bergen. And so it's a, it's a great book. The very cool thing about it is it really tells the story about flat irons. And so there's lots of flat iron stories in there. Um, if you're new around this place and you're just kind of wondering about the DNA of this place, this book um, is going to tell you really, really clearly what the DNA of this place is. It's going to tell you a lot of cool stuff about Jim as well. And so um, we're trying to figure out how many people are going to want those books because we're ordering some of those for next weekend to be available out there to you guys. And so if you do want one of those books, uh, you tear this off and drop it drop it in the, in the offering plate on the way out. And that way we'll have a good estimate for how many of those to order. All right. So check that out. The other thing is a lot of you, I was laughing at you all morning because uh, you came in and everybody's like, man, every seat in this place is saved because these things, uh, these things are on your, on your seats. And so um, grab one of these if my sermon gets too boring today or you just want to doodle or something like that, you can use them for that. But we've been doing this for six or seven weeks up here now. We just kind of want to hear your thoughts on what you feel like's working up here, what you feel like's not working, that kind of thing. Um, whether you feel like, you know, J- Jesse's good looking or not, you can write that in here, whatever you want to, whatever you want to write in here and then drop those also in the, the offering buckets on your, on your way out today, all right? We're, uh, we're continuing in our series called Countdown, and I don't know about you, but uh, in, in life, you can kind of observe this happening. There, there are systems that we create for a reason, but then over the course of time, those systems uh, cease to fulfill their intended purpose, and they actually start to do the opposite of what they were originally intended to do. I don't know what systems come to mind for you when you hear me talk about that. For a lot of us, we think government. Uh, a lot of us, we think schools. Uh, you might think religion, but systems have a way of being corrupted and messed up and turned upside down because of people that have their hands in the system. So I'll give you just an example. At my kids' school, I have three kids that are in elementary school, and so we find ourselves having to use this system that was created by the elementary school uh, called the hug-and-go lane, where you drop off and pick up your kids. And it has a very sweet, nice title, but I assure you it's not a very sweet and nice experience. In fact, a lot of us parents have renamed it the thug and go lane because people lose their ever-loving minds. It does not seem like a real calm place to hang out. It actually sounds like the streets of Manhattan because so many people are laying on their horns. People are, people are yelling at each other. I kid you not, flipping each other off. They're, they're flying around each other because somebody stops and gets out when they're not supposed to stop and get out. They're supposed to just push their kids out the window. 
you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. So this thing that we created to be this nice, calm, cool experience of dropping off your kids is actually turned into a rather dangerous experience, to be quite honest with you. And that's kind of what we've been watching happen in this countdown series as Jesus ventures into the temple and he sees this broken system, right? This religious system uh, that was supposed to serve people and serve God doing really neither one. And we've watched as Jesus raised the collective blood pressure of everybody in town when he rode into town on Sunday on a donkey and a revolutionary parade was incited and everybody's got their hopes and their dreams of a military revolution. They're waving palm branches, signifying military victory. They're yelling Hosanna, which means Lord, save us, save us now. So that's a threat, a threat to the Roman system, the Roman government. And then when he goes into that temple, right, he turns everything upside down. He turns over tables. He turns over seats with butts still in them, I like to think. And everybody's going, Jesus, what are you doing? And what he's doing is he's trying to fix what's been turned upside down. He's trying to restore things to their original purpose. And he's looking at all these folks going, you have taken something that was intended for good and you've actually made it, made it evil. So these religious leaders that Jesus keeps confronting, they're more than a little bit threatened by him. They're actually seeking to destroy him because he's been making fools of them. And when it says they sought to destroy him, remember this from last week if you were here? That means not only were they trying to kill him, but they were trying to make it as if he never existed. As if he he had never been on the face of the earth, trying to make sure that his teaching, his power, went no further than his breath and his, his body. And so they are so threatened because... Their ability to make money is being threatened, and Jesus is turning that upside down. And just like we said last week, you can learn a lot about somebody based on what makes them angry and what they're willing to fight for. We saw what Jesus gets angry about, and we saw what he was willing to fight for. Well, consequently, we also see who and what the religious leaders care about because they get so angry at Jesus who threatens their system, they're murderously angry at him. And so now in our countdown, we've ticked off the days. Sunday, he rides into town. Monday, he goes into the temple and he wrecks shop. And here we are on Tuesday. On Tuesday. And guess, guess where he goes again? He goes to the temple. And we have more information about this day, Tuesday, and this final week of Jesus's life leading up to the cross than any other day. And so if we were to actually cover all of it, we'd have to do like a six or eight week series. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to give you three brief snapshots of what happens on this day with Jesus, because I think these three weave together in a pretty profound way. And so Jesus rides back into town on Tuesday, and he goes immediately back to the scene of the crime from the day before, where he turned everything upside down and made everybody angry. He goes into the temple, and everybody everybody has a question for him. The religious authorities want to talk to him about this. And remember, 2.7, 2.7, 2 million people roughly are in, in town for this. And at this point, this is only a couple days before Passover starts. So everybody who's going to be in town is probably in town. Upwards, they think maybe 15,000 people in the temple on this day, perhaps listening to Jesus. And this is the first thing that happens when he walks into the temple. Look at this, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So all the big dogs come out. They bring out all the big guns, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all the guys who are running the show in the temple come to Jesus and go, whoa, 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 time out before you come in here and start wrecking shop again. What's the deal? And they have a question for him. So look at verse 28. They said to him, 
By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? This is an interesting question, especially in Jesus' day, because rabbis lived off the credibility of their teachers. So if you were a teacher, your credibility was based on who your teacher was. And so the problem with that is that nobody knows who Jesus' teacher was because he was a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life. And then all of a sudden, he just decided to be a teacher. And so now he comes in presuming to have authority over everybody in the temple, so much so that he refers to the temple as my house, which is blasphemous, basically saying, you're, you think you're God. And so everybody's basically looking at Jesus, the religious guy's going, who do you think you are, bro? That's my paraphrase. Who do you think you are? By what authority and whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus is going to respond, and I love the way he responds, because this really sets the tone for how the rest of this day's interactions are going to play out. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, This is really, really cool because he puts them in a really difficult place because he's referring to to John the Baptist and he's basically saying, hey, okay, you got a question for me, I got a question for you. That was a typical Jewish way of interacting. They did this all the time. And so he's just going, all right, I'll answer your question, but first you have to answer mine. Was John legit or not? The problem for them with this question is simply this. The only person who fell short of making the religious leaders as nervous as Jesus or was right on par with Jesus was John the Baptist. They hated this guy. They hated John the Baptist. He was always yelling at them. He was always telling them they were doing things wrong. They hated John. So they thought they were putting Jesus on the spot with their question. But what Jesus has done is flipped the script on them. And now they don't know what to do. So much so they have to go huddle up, which I think is a really cool picture. Look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. It's like they had to go, one moment, we'll be over here, (laughs) right? Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, hey, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why did, then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. See, what Jesus has done is he's given them quite the dilemma because they know that the people love John the Baptist, and so they can't come out publicly against him, but they also hated him, so they can't say that he's from heaven. So Jesus has has done exactly what they intended to do to him. He's got them cornered. Look at verse 33. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) I love that. It's like they all got together and they came out and they're like, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love that. You ain't got an answer for me. I'm not going to answer you. I don't have to play your games. This little interaction, it's going to set the tone for the whole day. Jesus sits down to teach. I envy that. Back in the day, they used to sit down to teach and everybody else stood up. So we could flip this around. I'll take a seat and you guys all stand for 40 minutes or whatever. But that's how it worked for Jesus. He sits down to teach and Time after time, moment after moment, you can read this in all the Gospels. There's different, different Gospels give us different uh, audiences that Jesus had and different people that came up to him. But the religious guys, it's like they keep huddling together in the temple and then they keep going, okay, your turn. You go. You go try to get him. Okay, you got an idea? All right, you go. And they send somebody out and they try to trap Jesus. They throw out all these scenarios and they ask all these questions, all these religious arguments. And Jesus keeps on over and over and over again, just ripping them a new one, humiliating them, sending them back with their tail between their legs, and then they keep sending more and more people out, and it intensifies throughout the day to the degree that Jesus starts telling like parables and stories that are obviously about all the religious guys while they're standing there. He starts actually calling them names. He starts calling them out saying, don't be like these guys over and over and over again. Matthew gives us this big, long like sermon Jesus launches into. I alluded to some of it last week, but look at some of the crazy things he says about the religious guys while they're standing there. Look at this. 
He says, for they, and he's pointing right at them. They're right there. He says, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. He's painting the typical religious scenario of saying, listen, they do a bunch of things. They lay a bunch of religious guilt on people, but they themselves don't even follow what they're preaching. A lot of us have lived under the weight of that. And then he goes on, he says this, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That word hypocrite is the word for actor in the Greek. It means one who wears a mask. You're just pretending. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. In other words, to convert somebody. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Wow. He's going, man, you're not leading people to God. You're leading people away from God. You're just preaching the same old, tired, works-based religion that doesn't lead people to heaven. It leads people straight to hell because nobody can ever get into heaven by doing good stuff. You're like blind guides leading people into destruction. And then he goes into this one. I mentioned this one last week. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear, appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you all also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then here's my personal favorite. This is pretty blunt. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How do you think all that went over? <laughs> Not so well. That's a sermon that lands with a, with a thud. And then what he does in Mark is he, he actually goes on to tell this parable where it's very obvious that the parable is all about these religious guys, and this just ticks them off to no end. And so look at this, Mark chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So their goal is to get him arrested. Their goal, because his popularity is so high, the problem is, is they know that if they arrest him right there in front of everybody in the temple, they risk a, a riot starting. And so what they want to do is they want to cleverly trap Jesus into saying something that when they do arrest him, everybody will go, well, it's justified based on what he just said. So they got to try to trap Jesus in his words so that they can get rid of him, but not start an all-out riot. So here's one of their attempts. Look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is really interesting to me because the Pharisees, two Pharisees, one group, Herodians, another group, they hated each other. But here they are coming together to try to trap Jesus. Why? Because nothing unites someone like a common enemy right? These examples just keep coming to mind. But for me, it works like this. I'm not a fan of North Carolina basketball, but they hate Duke. So when they play Duke, I root for North Carolina. Common enemy unites people, all right? That's the way that works. Now, you got these Herodians who their methodology was to get in bed with Rome, just accommodate Rome and all the secular culture that was involved with that and just try to keep your head down, make a buck, and just stay out of the way. And then you have the, the Pharisees who are religious separatists who basically say, no, 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 we got to withdraw ourselves from culture. we got to steer clear and remain pure. But here they are joining forces on this day because they have this, this common enemy. And so, so they come up to Jesus and they, they try to trap him. Look at verse 14. They start with some smooth speech. Look at this. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see what they're doing. Jesus sees right through it. What they're doing is simply this. There's these Roman security forces that are hanging out all around the temple because they got to watch because there's loud, large crowds everywhere, right? And so all it's going to take is one breath that sounds like insubordination. They go, hey, hey, did you hear what he just said? Because they know that if Jesus goes, no, don't pay taxes. They're, they're a terrible government. They're oppressive. Don't pay taxes. That gets Jesus arrested in a heartbeat. The other thing is this. If he says pay taxes, he's speaking to a constituency that thinks the taxes are absolutely criminal because they're getting taxed upwards of 80% of their income. So they feel like they've got Jesus absolutely trapped. They start trying to butter him up, and then they paint this scenario. They're like, all right, this is full proof. There's no way Jesus can get himself out of this one. Now, look at what Jesus does. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. That was a coin, a day's wage. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It's awesome. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's going, let me see some money. Whose picture's on that? Oh, Caesar. Okay. You guys don't have a problem spending this, I've noticed. You don't have a problem making this, I've noticed. So there's an obligation that comes with spending it and making it. It may be unrighteous, you may not like it, but at the end of the day, if you're trusting in this to take care of you, it will not take care of you. So just render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. And everybody marveled at him like, whoa, Confucius, you know, you're so smooth. And then after this, what they do is they send, a, they send another group called the Sadducees to him. And these are the guys who run the temple. And the ironic thing is, They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they pose a question to Jesus that's all about the resurrection of the dead, and Jesus just immediately goes, you you guys are lame. (laughs) Again, my paraphrase. Then it says they send in an expert in the law. They send in the big dog, a heavy hitter, and he can't trap Jesus either. And all this happens throughout the course of the day, and finally he's about to wrap up his teaching, and at the end of this day, he, he does this, look, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He's saying these guys, he's pointing at them right there. He's like, these guys are the predecessors to the TV preacher with a shiny Rolex and a $10,000 Armani suit begging into the camera for some widow sitting in a trailer to give him her last dime. That's what these guys are doing. He's going, do not be like these guys. Watch out for these guys who wear all this fancy stuff. They care about their appearance. They spend everything on themselves. And at the same time, Jesus says, they devour widows' houses. That's a very strong phrase. It literally means to plunder and extort the homes of widows. In other words, you put religious pressure on women who are vulnerable to contribute to something that doesn't help them, and it only helps you. Remember remember what we learned last week, the purest form of religion or worship is? Jesus' little brother James said it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you see, the temple, all the tithes and offerings that were given in the temple, that was originally designed to take care of poor people. It was originally designed to take care of widows and orphans, to feed them, to house them, to clothe them. 
not to provide nice fancy robes for the religious scribes. But things have gotten out of hand. Things have been turned upside down. And as Jesus is talking about widows, watch what happens. Look at this, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So here's what he's watching, all right? There's about 12, 13 of these huge offering boxes in the, in the temple in the court of women. And they were, uh, they were made typically out of copper or some sort of stone. And there were no bills in Jesus's day. There were, no, there were only coins. And so when people went to give, it made a loud sound. So the more wealthy you were and the more you gave, the more distracting and noticeable the sound was. So it would sound something like this, a bunch of rich guys standing around like this. Oh wait, there's more, there's more, you know. And standing there going, I know, I know, it was a good month. I know, I just love God so much. That, that, was, the, that was the picture. Jesus sits and, and he observes and he notices what everybody is noticing. And then he notices something unnoticeable. Look at verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. Two small copper coins actually literally translates, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of one sixty-fourth of a daily wage. Literally, they were shavings of a piece of metal. They would have been easily not even noticed in the offering box, wouldn't have been considered worth counting. She couldn't have even purchased the offering of the poor. She couldn't have gotten a couple pigeons, and she drops them in with no noise, no pomp and circumstance, no commotion, no attention. No one notices except who? Jesus. Look at verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. And I love the way Jesus teaches. He just observes things that are happening. And he says, come here, let me, let me show you something. Let me, let me teach you something right now. It's called, a, it's called a teachable moment. So he calls over his disciples and he goes, I want you to notice this. Nobody else noticed it, but I did. I want you to notice what she just did. She gave more than those guys. And I imagine the disciples going, actually, Jesus, no, she didn't. We saw those guys. It took five minutes for them to give everything they gave. They gave a lot more than her. And so Jesus explains himself. Look at verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Motivation was different, so the effect of their giving was totally different. They gave a lot because they had a lot to give. They had a lot left over. There wasn't much sacrifice involved. She, however, gave everything and got no attention for it. So track with me. Here's the, here's the snapshots we're looking at so far. On Monday, Jesus made clear that this whole temple system is jacked up. It's not serving its original purposes. What's going on in there and the people running it have got this all wrong. So today on Tuesday, he's pushing even further. He's saying, listen, don't be like these guys that run this whole thing. All they do is care for themselves, but they don't care for the widows that they're supposed to care about. They literally devour widows' houses, widows like her. Her, right there. He's going, this is a walking illustration. She's demonstrating everything I'm trying to tell you. This widow right here. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm talking about it and it's happening right in front of your faces and nobody's noticing. She shouldn't even be this way. She shouldn't even be in this circumstance. This whole thing, this whole temple thing was designed to worship God and take care of her. That's what it was for. She should be able to feed herself today, but she can't because that guy needed a new robe. That, that's what he's saying. And here she is going, I don't have much, but what I have, I give because, you know what, if I rely on this to take care of me, it won't get me far anyway. And so she gives everything she has because of her faith in God to a broken religious system. She's demonstrating what faith looks like, leaning your life on God and letting go of things that can't take care of you anyway. 
See, a day that was marked by religious arguments over and over and over again. All these religious guys, they just want to argue and argue and argue about all kinds of different things. That day ends with a demonstration of just how broken this religion has become. A bankrupt religion is bankrupting widows. That's what Jesus is saying. Then watch what happens next. Some of his disciples don't really get it, which is normal. And they're packing up to leave the temple on this day. And as they do, this is what happens, chapter 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's looking at the temple. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Yeah, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You like this building? You think it's pretty? You think it's cool? Yeah, it's going to burn. And it did. In AD 70, it burned. It was turned upside down, never to be rebuilt. No sacrificial system ever again. Jesus has no desire to preserve broken, bankrupt, corrupt religious establishments. Needless to say, Jesus has ruffled more than just a few feathers on this day, on this Tuesday. And the tension in the air is so thick as Passover is getting closer. And so plans are actually being made now. Matthew gives us this little window into what plans are being made. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, it says this, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Like, guys, you can see the way this is going to end, right? Like, guys, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. This is going to end in me hanging on a cross. Jesus was explicit about this for a long, long time. People just refused to get it. People just refused to believe it. And here's the other side of the story. Meanwhile, almost, verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they start making all these plans. How are we going to kill Jesus without making an uproar? How are we going to kill Jesus without anybody really noticing? Let's not do it during the feast. Let's do it after the feast. And all they need is an opportunity. And that's what they're looking for. And one of Jesus' own disciples provides the opportunity. I don't know if it's because he just listened to Jesus' explicit, like, I'm going to get crucified at the end of the week and went, I'm out for that. Or if he's just seeing an opportunity to gain something and capitalize what it is. But look at this, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Notice what Judas does. What will you give me if I let go of Jesus? What will you put in my hand if I let go of Jesus? And the answer comes back, 30 pieces of silver. So again, track with me. The day began when Jesus said, throw me a coin. He's hanging on to a coin going, give it to Caesars. Give it to Caesar. If you hold on to this and think it's going to take care of you, it's not going to take care of you. Then in a few moments later, you have this widow who lets go of some coins and goes, I can't rely on that to take care of me. And then at the end of the day, you have Judas going, I'll let go of Jesus if you'll just put some coin in my hand. See the theme? Judas going, yeah, I'll let go of Jesus. Last week we said you can find out a lot about what someone cares about, what makes them angry based on what they're willing to fight for. We saw who and what Jesus cares for and what he's willing to fight for last week when he turned over tables in the temple. This week I would say this, you can find out who or what someone really trusts in based on what they're willing to let go of. What they're willing to let go of. And then what they take hold of after they let go of the other thing reveals who or what they have faith in. That's what faith is. When you're willing to let go of everything to take hold of something else, that reveals what you really have faith in. 
So we learn a whole lot about Judas right here because he lets go of Jesus to take hold of 30 pieces of silver. And all of history from this point on has been eager to stand up and condemn Judas. But we better sit right down because if we do, we'll condemn ourselves, will we not? Right? Every follower of Jesus in this room has sold Jesus out more than once, including and especially me. Let's be honest about this, folks. We've all done this many times. We go, I'll let go of Jesus as long as I get what? Fill in the blank. Could be a million different things. I'll let go of Jesus as long as. Jesus, I'll let go of what you say is best, what you say is right, what you say is true for just a moment of sexual pleasure. Jesus, I'll let go of honest business practice. I'll let go of my very integrity if you'll put in my hand some money. I'll take advantage of people and I'll use people if, if I'll just... If I can just have some power, if I can have power in my hand, I'll let go of everything, including Jesus. I'll make fun of, humiliate, and shame others for the sake of popularity. You know what that's called? Middle school, right? And high school, and unfortunately, a lot of our lives still. I'll live a selfish life. I'll keep everything for myself. I won't look to the needs of others for the sake of comfort. Just put some comfort in my hand. I'll let go of all those things you told me to do, Jesus. I'll ignore the clear commands to participate into going into all the world and risking much for your name if you'll just provide me with the illusion of safety. If you'll just put some safety in my hand. Oh man, I won't go anywhere. I won't do anything. I won't do anything you told me to do as long as I feel safe, even though it's an illusion. Safety is the biggest illusion we live with. That's why when, it, when something breaks in, it just destroys us because we thought we had a hold on this thing called safety. Some of us would go, I'll sacrifice the mind you gave me, my capacity to make wise and rational choices. If you'll just give me a high, a fix, a feeling, just put that in my hand and I'll, I'll give over this mind you gave me, Jesus. We all sell out all the time. We say, as long as I get this, as long as I get that, I'll let go of him. We are all sellouts. Good thing Jesus came for sellouts, huh? That's who Jesus came for. You know that, right? Like I said last week, I I maybe should say this every week. Jesus did not come for good, faithful people because there's no such thing. They don't exist. Jesus came to make us what we are not, namely good and faithful Jesus came to give us what we could never get on our own, to become good and to be faithful. So here's the takeaway this week, all right? Hold on to Jesus, and trust me on this, if you hold on to Jesus, you may end up with nothing else. No, really, like you may end up with Jesus and nothing else, but I'll tell you one thing you will not have, regret. You won't have any regret. You can let go of Jesus, and you may have absolutely everything. Let me tell you one thing I can promise you you'll have, regret, right? Paul said it this way, of all the things in life that look and appear important, of all the things that people so desperately cling to, of all the things that people pursue and desire to hold on to, Paul says, I let go of all that to take hold of something better. Look at what he says in Philippians 3. And by the way, he writes this from a prison with battle wounds and scars on his back, on his face, on his body. He writes this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. And again, in the Greek, that's the word skubalon. It is a swear word. It means dung. In order that I may gain 
Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, I'm not good because I pursued being good and somehow attained that by obeying all the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He gave me something I couldn't get on my own, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sum it up this way. Hold on to Jesus, that equals no regrets. Let go of Jesus, that equals nothing but regret. And I say to you this morning that if you have never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. Make it clean. Make it clean. You may be 38 years old as I happen to be. And one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You are afraid that you will lose your job, or you're afraid that you will be criticized, or that you will lose your popularity? Are you afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house? And so you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you are just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. The cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. You died when you refused to stand up for right. You died when you refused to stand up for truth. You died when you refused to stand up for justice. My favorite line is when he says, and the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. Cast that, you feel that? Like, I mentioned this last week, Jim and I, we get, we get emails sometimes, and you know, along with, uh, I, I guess this church is just for lost and broken people, sometimes we get emails from folks going, and I'm just like so bored, like I feel like I'm alive, but I'm I'm not really alive, like I feel like I have nothing worth living for. And the reality of that statement that Martin Luther King Jr. gives us is that, man, when you don't find something worth dying for, you die. When you find something worth dying for, you live. You realize he got that from the Bible. (laughs) To to live is Christ, to die is gain is the way Paul put it. Jesus said, you want to find your life, then die. (laughs) Lose your life and you find it. So if you're bored, if you're going, man, I just feel like I don't, I don't know what I'm here for, maybe it's because you don't know what you're here for. There is something worth dying for. There is someone worth dying for. And the ironic part of all that, when you live your life for him and hand your life over to him, then all of a sudden you live. It's all upside down and backwards, isn't it? But for some reason, when you test the theory, it works. Let's all stand and pray together and then worship this God who's so gracious to us. God, we come before you and we're thankful. We're thankful for who you are and what you, you've done. God, we, uh, 
we pray for the courage to be willing to lay our lives down. Just like Jesus laid down his life for us, we pray that we could have the courage to lay our lives down for him. Not to earn or gain anything, but because we already have it. But because you've given us grace and mercy and you've given us love when we didn't deserve it, you came for us when we were not good people and you, you've transformed so many of us in this room. God, you are worth laying your, our lives down for. God, you are more than enough. You are awesome. Thank you for giving us a cause worthy of our very lives. And that's the name of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.